Chapter Three of Jacqueline of Golden River by H. M. Egbert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Three, Covering the Tracks. I thought quickly, and my consciousness seemed to embrace all the details of the situation with a keenness foreign to my nature. Once, I believe. I had been able to play an active part among the men who were my associates in that adventurous life that lay so far behind me. But eight years of clerkship had reduced me to the condition of one who waits on the command of others. Now my irresolution vanished for the time, and I was my old self once more. The first task was the disposal of the body in such a way that suspicion would not attach itself to me after I had vacated the rooms next morning. There was a fire escape running up to the floor of that room on the outside of the house, though there was no egress to it. It had been put up by the landlord to satisfy the requirements of some new law, but had never been meant for use, and it was constructed of the flimsiest and cheapest ironwork. I saw that it would be possible by standing on a chair to swing myself up to the hole in the wall and reach down to the iron stairs, up which, I assumed, the dead man had crept after I had given him the hint of Jacqueline's abode by emerging from the front door. I raised the dead man in my arms, looking apprehensively toward the bed. I was afraid Jacqueline would awaken, but she slept in heavy peace undisturbed by the harsh creaking of the sagging floor beneath its double burden. I put the fur cap on the grotesque, nodding dead head, and, pushing a chair toward the wall with my foot, mounted it and managed with a great effort to squeeze through the hole, pulling up the body with me as I did so. Then I felt with my foot for the little platform at the top of the iron stairs outside, found it, and dropped. Afterward, I dragged the dreadful burden down from the hole. I had not known that I was strong before, and I do not understand now how I managed to accomplish my wretched task. I carried the dead man all the way down the fire escape, clinging and straining against the rotting, rusting bars which bent and cracked beneath my weight, and seemed about to break and drag down the entire structure from the wall. I hardly paused at the platforms outside the successive stories. The weather was growing very cold, a storm was coming up, and the wind soughed and whined dismally around the eaves. I reached the bottom at last and rested for a moment. At the back of the house was a little vacant space, filled with heaps of debris from the demolished portions of the building and with refuse which had been dumped there by tenants who had left and had never been removed. This yard was separated only by a rotting fence with a single wooden rail from a small blind alley. The alley had run between rows of stables in former days when this was a fashionable quarter, but now these were mostly unoccupied, save for a few more pretentious ones at the lower end, which were being converted into garages. Everywhere were heaps of brick, piles of rain-rotted wood, and rubbish heaps. 
I took up my burden and placed it at the end of the alley, covering it roughly with some old burlap bags which lay there. I thought it safe to assume that the police would look upon the dead man as the victim of some footpad. It was only remotely possible that suspicion would be directed against any occupant of any of the houses bordering on the cul-de-sac. I did not search the dead man's pockets. I cared nothing who he was, and did not want to know. My sole desire was to acquit Jacqueline of his death in the world's eyes. That he had come deservedly by it, I was positive. I was her sole protector now, and I felt a furious resolve that no one should rob me of her. The ground was as hard as iron, and I was satisfied that my footsteps had left no track. There would be snow before morning, and if my feet had left any traces, these would be covered effectively. Four o'clock was striking while I was climbing back into the room again. Jacqueline lay on the bed in the same position. She had not stirred during that hour. While she slept, I set about the completion of my task. I took the knife from the floor where I had flung it, scrubbed it, and placed it in my suitcase. Then I scrubbed the floor clean, afterward rubbing it with a soiled rag to make its appearance uniform. I washed my hands and thought I had finally removed all traces of the affair, but coming back I perceived something upon the floor which had escaped my notice. It was the leather collar of the Eskimo dog, with its big silver studs and the maker's silver nameplate. All this while the animal had remained perfectly quiet in the room, crouching at Jacqueline's feet and beside the bed. It had not attempted to molest me, as I had feared might be the case during the course of my gruesome work. I came to the conclusion that there might have been a struggle, that it had run to its mistress's assistance, and that the collar had been torn from it by the dead man. My first thought was to put the collar back upon the creature's neck, but then I came to the conclusion that this might possibly serve as a means of identification and it was essential that no one should be able to identify the dog. So I picked the collar up and carried it into the next room and held it under the light of the incandescent gas mantle. The letters of the maker's name were almost obliterated, but after a careful study I was able to make them out. The name was Maclay and Robitaille, and the place of manufacture, Quebec. This confirmed my belief concerning Jacqueline's nativity. I pried the plate from the leather and slipped it into my pocket. I put the broken collar into my suitcase, together with the dagger, and then I set about packing my things for the journey which we were to undertake. I had always accustomed myself to travel with a minimum of baggage, and the suitcase, which was a roomy one, held all that I should need at any time. When I had finished packing, I went back to Jacqueline and sat beside her while she slept. As I sat down, I heard a city clock strike five. In a little while it would begin to lighten, and the advent of the day filled me with a sort of terror. I watched the sleeping girl. Who was she? 
How could she sleep calmly after that night's deed? The mystery seemed unfathomable. The girl alone in the city, the robbers, the dog, the dead man, and the one who had escaped me. Jacqueline's bag lay on the bureau and disgorging bills. There were rolls and rolls of them. Eight thousand dollars did not seem too much. Besides these, the bag contained the usual feminine properties, a handkerchief, sachet bag, a pocket mirror, and some thin papers, coated with rice powder. The thought crossed my mind that the bills might be counterfeit, and I picked one up and looked carefully at it, comparing it with one from my own pocketbook. But I was soon satisfied that they were real. Well, I turned back to Jacqueline, ashamed of the suspicion that had crossed my mind. Her soft brown hair streamed over the pillow and hung down toward the floor, a heavy mass, uncoiled from the wound braids upon her neck. Her breast rose and fell evenly with her breathing. She looked even younger than on the preceding evening. I was sure now that she was innocent of evil, and my unworthy thoughts made me ashamed. Her outstretched arm was extended beyond the edge of the bed. I raised her hand and held it in my own, and I sat thus until the room began to lighten, watching her all the while. It was strange that, as I sat there, I began to grow comforted. I looked on her as mine. When I had kissed her hands, I had forgotten the ring upon her finger. And now, holding that hand in mine and running my fingers round and round the circlet of gold, I was not troubled at all. I could not think of her as any other man's. She was mine, Jacqueline. Presently she stirred, her eyes opened, and she sat up. I placed a pillow at her back. She gazed at me with apathy, but there was also recognition in her look. "'Do you know me, Jacqueline?' I asked. "'Yes, Paul,' she answered. "'Your friend?' My friend, Paul. Jacqueline, I am going to take you home, I said, hoping that she would tell me something, but I dared ask her no more. I meant to take her to Quebec and make inquiries there. Thus I hoped to learn something of her, even if the sight of the town did not awaken her memories. I am going to take you home, Jacqueline, I repeated. Yes, Paul she answered in that docile manner of hers. "'It is lucky you have your furs because the winter is cold where your home is.' "'Yes, Paul,' she repeated as before, and a few more probings on my part convinced me that she remembered nothing at all. Her mind was like a person's newly awakened in a strange land. But this state brought with it no fear, only a peaceful quietude and faith which was very touching. "'We have forgotten a lot of things that troubled us, haven't we, Paul?' she asked me presently. "'But we shall not care, since we have each other for friends. And afterwards perhaps we shall pick them up again. Do you not think so, Paul?' "'Yes, Jacqueline,' I answered. 
"'If we remembered now, the memory of them might make us unhappy,' she continued wistfully. "'Do you not think so, Paul?' "'Yes, Jacqueline.' There was a faint and vague alarm in her eyes, which made me glad for her sake that she did not know. "'Now, Jacqueline,' I said, "'we shall have to begin to make ready for our journey.' I had just remembered that the storage company which was to warehouse my few belongings was to call that day. The van would probably be at the house early in the morning, and it was essential that we should be gone before it arrived. Fortunately, I had arranged to leave the door unlocked in case my arrangements necessitated my early departure, and this was understood, so that my absence would cause no surprise. I showed Jacqueline the bathroom and drew the curtains. Then I went into the kitchenette and made coffee on a gas range, and since it was too early for the arrival of my morning loaf, which was placed just within the street door by the baker's boy every day, I made some toast and buttered it. I remember reflecting, with the relic of my old forced economy, how fortunate it was that my pound of butter had just lasted until the morning when I was to break up housekeeping. When I took in the breakfast, Jacqueline was waiting for me, looking very dainty and charming. She was hungry, too, also a good sign. She did not seem to understand that there was anything strange in the situation in which we found ourselves. I did not know whether this was due to her mental state or to that strange unsophistication which I had already observed in her. At any rate, we ate our breakfast together as naturally as though we were a married couple of long standing. After the meal was ended and we had fed the dog, Jacqueline insisted on washing the dishes, and I showed her the kitchenette and let her do so, though I should never have need for the cheap plates and cups again. "'Now, Jacqueline, we must go,' I said. I placed her neckpiece about her. I closed her bag, stuffing the bills inside, and hung it on her arm. I could not resist a smile to see the little pad covered with its maze of figures among the rolls of money. I was afraid that the sight of it would awaken her memories, but she only looked quietly at it and put it away. I wanted her to let me bank her money for her, but did not like to ask her. However, of her own account, she took out the bills and handed them to me. "'What a lot of money I have,' she said. "'I hardly thought there was so much money in the world, Paul.' It was past eight when we left the house. I carried my suitcase, and stopping at a neighboring express office, had it sent to the Grand Central Station, and then I decided to take the dog to the animal's home. I did not like to do so, but was afraid, in the necessity of protecting Jacqueline, that its presence might possibly prove embarrassing. So I took it there and left it, with instructions that it was to be kept until I sent for it. I paid a small sum of money, and we departed. Jacqueline apparently indifferent to what I had done, though the animal's distress at being parted from her disturbed my conscience a good deal. Still, it seemed the only thing to do under our circumstances. Quebec, then, was my objective, 
and with no further clue than the dog collar. There were two trains, I found, at three and at nine. The first, which I proposed to take, would bring us to our destination soon after nine the next day, but our morning was to be a busy one, and it would be necessary to make our preparations quickly. A little snow was on the ground, but the sun shone brightly, and I felt that the shadows of the night lay behind us. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline